Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Sunday Nice Things, the version of this podcast where we just give you something nice to tickle your ears on a Sunday afternoon while you may be running errands, doing dishes, ignoring your husband and your children, all the things that I do on Sunday afternoons. This week, I had the crazy gonzo idea that maybe instead of the big book that I've been working on for, for the past past year or so, maybe I should write a trad wife murder mystery called Trad. And I just put it on the Instagram and in the newsletter. And so many of you, more than 100 of you, said, yes, you should. So because I'm a crazy person, I wrote the prologue last night at three in the morning when I woke up in the middle of the night, because I always wake up in the middle of the night. And it's actually really good. And now I can't stop writing it. But I'm supposed to write this other book. But the premise is that a journalist and a mom gets a call from one of her college friends, Becky, who is now a very fancy farm-based trad wife influencer who's always barefoot with her 10 children and her chickens. And Becky wants this journalist named Lizzie to write a profile of her. And so Lizzie goes and she writes the profile. And while she's there, Becky's husband ends up murdered, hogtied and left to bleed out in their family farm. And that's all I've got so far. It is called Trad. I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I just texted my agent. And sometimes when I text her these things, she's like, Piazza, you be crazy. But we'll see. And I'll keep you updated. But first, clearly, we have to make Sicilian Inheritance the book of the summer. So if you haven't already ordered for yourself and for all of your friends, give it an order. I'm still offering free lifetime subscriptions to the Over the Influence Substack newsletter. Just DM me or email me your receipt and I'll sign you up for life. And then you'll be in this weird coven with me, which is a lot of fun. Okay, so today, today, I am bringing you a podcast called This American Ex-Wife. It's a really good name, right? Like a really good name. It is by the incredible author, journalist, and commentator Liz Lenz. I first became obsessed with Liz when I read her book, Godland, which is just, whew. I read it. I decided I wanted to be friends with her. I reached out, and she was on one of the very early episodes of Under the Influence, and she's just as funny and witty and sassy in person as she is in her writing. She's also the creator of the newsletter Men Yell at Me, where she names a dingus of the week. Anyone who can use the word dingus the way she does, I mean, that's a person I want to fucking hang out with, all right? So this American Ex-Wife podcast, which you're going to listen to today, is a podcast that discusses the state of American heterosexual marriage. And by state, Liz means trash fire. Trash fire. Liz sits down with a cast of women to talk about their divorces, their journeys, and unpacks an institution that many people take part in, but very few talk about. And today's episode is with the poet and best-selling author Maggie Smith. It's so good. In this episode, Maggie shares how her divorce made her spend more time with someone she did not expect to be spending more time with, herself. And she explains how she learned to leave room for that self, even as she shares part of it in her work. Yes, very good. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's good. It's good. This American Ex-Wife is actually the name of Liz's new book, which is coming out very soon. Check it out. Reorder it. Do all of the things. And Liz is going to be on this show also very soon. So you're going to hear more of her. And I'm going to make her say the word dingus like 15 times. Happy listening. Welcome to This American Ex-Wife, the podcast where we talk about our breaking, remaking, the systems and people we love who kind of oppress us, and how we renegotiate the terms of our existence. I'm the host, Liz Lenz. Marriage is a two-way street with lights that don't really function well and the city's trying to build a roundabout. And what I'm saying is it's chaotic and not always in your control. But we do try to control it, don't we? We hold on longer than we should, too afraid of what happens if our happily ever after ends. Maggie Smith found that out the hard way when she discovered her husband was in love with someone else and the life she'd worked so hard to build crumbled before her eyes. She tried to fix it using grit, therapy, and just a little bit of denial. That didn't work either. And so Maggie Smith found herself rebuilding her life as a single mother of two children. Her book, We Could Make This Place Beautiful, chronicles this period of her life in real time. It's sad, angry, triumphant, full of love and loss. It's honest while still making space for the feelings of her children and her ex. In one passage, she writes, How I picture it. We are all nesting dolls, carrying the earlier iterations of ourselves inside. We carry the past inside us. We take ourselves, all of ourselves, wherever we go. Inside 40-something me is the woman I was in my 30s, the woman I was in my 20s, the teenager I was, the child I was. Inside divorced me, married me, the me who loved my husband, the me who believed what we had was irrevocable and permanent, the me who believed in permanence. I still carry these versions of myself. It's a kind of reincarnation without death. All these different lives we get to live in this one body as ourselves. Maggie Smith is a poet, writer, educator, and teacher. She has published several books of poetry and prose, including Good Bones, you might know the title poem, and two recent bestsellers, Keep Moving and Goldenrod. Her memoir, You Can Make This Place Beautiful, is a New York Times bestseller. In her book, Keep Moving, which is a collection of essays and quotes that celebrate beauty on the other side of loss, she writes, When life held your hand in the flames, it taught you something about the kind of burning you can endure. You survived. Don't forget that. And don't diminish it. Keep moving. Here to talk to us about heartbreak and strength and finding joy is Maggie Smith. Let's get to the show. Maggie, welcome to the podcast where we really struggle to pass the Bechdel test. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's good to be here. (laughs) What did being a wife mean to you? Ooh, that's a big question. You know, I thought of myself as being like an integral part of a family unit. So when I think about what it meant to be a wife, I think if I'm being honest, 
I would I would be roundabout thinking about what it means to be a mom mm-hmm. um, because I was only a wife for a few years before I was a mom. And then that kind of um, took over more of my energy, I think, than being a quote unquote wife. So in my mind, being a wife is like being one one fourth of my family. And so post-divorce, I am now sort of one third of my family, which I guess is a is like a power up in a way. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to think about it that way, as far as like family distribution, my role got a little bit larger, even as my family got a little bit smaller. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's so interesting how you tie being a wife together with being a mother. Um, you know, those roles can be so complexly woven together that it's really hard to separate them. And um, I think that also causes a lot of like derision in relationships, right? Especially if you might be partnered with somebody who likes things a little bit more neat, tidy, boxes, Right. And I know a lot of women who really struggle with like, when am I a wife? When am I a mother? When am I myself? How do you, well, I guess you can decide at what point in your life you want to answer these questions, but how do you untangle those knots of identity? I think that that for me was um, one of the trickiest parts of, of, of getting divorced and becoming, becoming an American ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I still have a title. It's just, um, it's like a, it's funny. Like when you're, so, when you're an ex-wife, your title automatically has negation in mm. it. Right. So you're like named by what you're not. And so even in the memoir, um, I refer to my ex-husband more as my children's father than I do as my ex-husband because I don't love the idea of like the negation part is so tricky, isn't it? And I think that's something I'm trying to kind of like parse through myself is, is um, not not trying to think of myself as like shaped around an absence, mm. um, but like being whole on my own. Like what what does it mean to not be half of a couple, but to be whole as a single person? Um it's yeah, it's incredibly complex. And I think I didn't have enough time as a wife before having kids to really feel like I was secure and even knowing what that role was. And also I was in my late 20s and I don't even think I knew quite what life was yet at yeah. that stage apart from being married. And so I, I grew up in my marriage which also complicates things, doesn't it? As opposed to like people who get married in their 40s are maybe a little bit more gelled when they come together. And and I think, you know, second and, and future marriages, I, I always hear stories about that. Like it seems like people kind of know more who they are, what their priorities are, what their boundaries are, what realistic expectations might be Mm. in a relationship. But I think when you meet and fall in love and get married in your twenties, when you're still sort of an amorphous being, a lot of growing up happens and that can either happen together or you can find yourself like 
the tendrils of that plant tend to like snake in opposite directions at times. Yeah. I think one of the hardest things about being an American woman, wife or not, is that, you know, so much of society teaches us or encourages us to throw ourselves into other roles, mother, Mm -hmm. wife, so soon and so quickly that it is, you know, it's hard to say, well, who am I if I am not those things? And then, um, you know, a lot of, I mean, I think what, what a break, what tragedy, what heartbreak gives you is a chance to say, oh, this is who I am. Like I've sloughed off, you know, whatever, whatever, like exoskeleton, you know, and now mm. I am this like new cicada. That metaphor is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> with with buggy red eyes. <laughs> Uh, a horrifying creature. <laughs> I am a horrifying creature, Maggie. <laughs> I um, listen. I'm gonna. Well, I had a writing mentor one time say, "Metaphors are like wild horses. Sometimes you tame them, and sometimes they tame you. And yeah, uh, and sometimes I, they throw you. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes they trample your head." <laughs> I actually like the cicada. I like the cicada metaphor. You know, someone asked me recently, like, how are you like, are you now able to be yourself? Do you feel like a different person? And and my my answer was like, no, not really. I feel like myself. And maybe I've I've been able to kind of reinstate or like excavate some pieces that were a little um, like not gone but just a little quieter, Mm. um, like a little smaller in my life when I was married, but I'm not a different person than I was then. Like I, um, you know, a a cicada is a cicada, no matter, no matter its freaky form. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just call me freak? Um, Um, I think I called us us and I think that's accurate. I think it's accurate. I, um, you know, I think it's so wise what you said about like, um, identity through negation, like the X being this, um, it, it, I struggled with the title because in my mind it had always been this funny thing while I was writing the book. But then when it came to put it on the cover, I was like, is that going to be too negative? You know, is that again, like, is that it? And then, you know, talking through it with my editor, it was like, well, it's a reclamation, right? Because, because society has now said you are an ex this, and there really isn't like, I mean, just much like with so many other terms in in American society, it really doesn't have the same weight for men. Like, you know, I don't like a man doesn't go out into the world and like define himself by being an ex-husband. I mean, he may be my ex-husband, but like but when I go out into the world, people see an ex-wife and that's Mm. like very different. Did you find yourself like navigating that identity? Because I found a lot of people were so weird with me, like, you know, like I was going to start like going out to the bars until 2 a.m. and wearing bedazzled <laughs> jeans or something. And oh, not that there's anything wrong with those yeah. things, which I um, did do. Which but. you clearly definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and there's no, right. I mean, the idea of the divorcee mm. is also such a gendered um, concept. Like what happens to women? Do they, do, are they like sad 
cat ladies post-divorce or are they girls gone wild? And it seems like those are our two options. Um, And and I, I'm, I was neither of those things, but it's, it's interesting too, because I think as an ex-wife, I'm, I'm sort of defined by negation, but as a wife and mom, I was defined by multiplying, Mm. right? So it's like you are as a woman defined by the people around you present or not present. So your value is, um, who are you to others (laughs) as opposed to who are you to yourself? You know, like I'm so-and-so's, I'm Rhett's mom, I'm Violet's mom, I'm so-and-so's wife or ex-wife, I'm so-and-so's daughter, I'm so-and-so's sister. Um, So I think so much of the way that we see ourselves and and are conditioned to see ourselves is in relation to other people. So of course, we think carefully about the ex-ness of it because we've been pried apart from uh, like a big identity marker mm-hmm. for us. And it's, and it's negative because like, then it is, you have erred, right? Like you have fallen afoul of this narrative that yeah. you were supposed to, you know, I, I have, I'm one of eight kids. I'm number two of eight kids. So big sister energy. I left immediately for college, lived with a bunch of women. And then I was even an RA. So again, taking care of people, I immediately got married had I, we waited five years to have kids, you know, until <laughs> we were like 20, 28, 27, 28, really old, really old. Um, <laughs> I'm like horrified now when I know like 27 year olds who are like, I'm getting married. And I'm like, you can't do that. You're just a baby. No, <laughs> That's no, sweetie. Yes. Yeah. No, honey. They're like, ma'am, we're friends. Um, <laughs> And, and, um, and then, you know, so it was like, when I got divorced, I was like, this is the first time I've ever been alone. Same. And it was, it was the scariest. It was, it was so scary. And I had to like really face myself, you know, like face quiet time with myself. Like I couldn't distract myself with like kids. I mean, I I ended up adopting like a million pets, which was probably (laughs) pathological. And it's fine. You know what? It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's not mental illness. It's fine. Um, This is fine. (laughs) uh, But uh, yeah, I, I had to face myself. And then like through that, you know, that like empty space that were all those relationships that had like woven the cloth of my self-identity I now had to like patch some holes and it was one of the scariest things I've ever done and I and I feel that in your book um I feel that knitting together of self and really saying who am I in these moments when I am not wife and mother yeah who am I now I have the same I mean I I had not been single you know, I was 41 years old and I thought, oh my gosh, I just got out of a almost 19 year relationship, which was preceded by a, you know, four or five year relationship, which was preceded in high school by a two year relationship. So if I really wanted to tr- like find my way back down the breadcrumb trail to when I was a standalone human being, I hadn't even gotten my driver's license yeah. yet let alone lived in the world and paid bills and and had, you know, any adult responsibility. So I, I mean, again, okay, that's, uh, 
that that took some some quick patching, as you say. Who am I now? Like, how do I do this by myself? Um, logistically, financially, emotionally. I mean, just the it felt um, in the beginning, frankly, pretty insurmountable. Like, I really didn't know how to be in the world um, as the adult in my house. Um, and on the flip side of that, it has been terrifying and also incredibly empowering to figure it out for myself. That's, I mean, that's why I love when you wrote, this is a story of a woman coming home to herself. I think so many divorce narratives, especially in movies, which, you know, we love them, but like they always involve like finding another man and you'll get a kick out of this. But when I was trying to sell my book, there was an editor who was like, well, just did, did you, uh, did you find your happily ever after? And I was like, well, yeah, she goes, oh, no, I mean, like, are you seeing somebody? And I was like, mm, that's not, the kind of book I want to write, you know, and, uh, but it was just so like offhand. And I just realized, you know, and that's New York city. <laughs> it's not even Iowa asking right. that. So, um, I loved, I love that you were very pointedly, this is a story about finding my relationship with myself and, uh, tell us what have you found? Who is this woman who you've gotten who, to know? Who is this independent who is person? Yeah. Who is this person who's like chainsawing tree limbs in the backyard of her home? Right? What? Yeah. What is happening? Yeah. I, I had a day last week where I, um, chainsawed some tree limbs in my backyard and made homemade banana bread. And mm -hmm. my son was like, you can do it all. And I was like, that is exactly right. And I want you to pay attention to this boy child. Yes. Um, because this is what, this is what I can do. So, yeah, I mean, it's my happily ever after has, has really been more about learning to trust myself and take ownership for my life and not outsource it out of fear to other people. And so the, the biggest change I think I've made over the past few years is trying not to make decisions out of fear. And I think in my 20s, I made a ton of decisions out of fear. In my 30s, I was still making a lot of decisions out of fear. And I got to a point where I realized that was really not serving me. So I'm... Um, I'm like scared, but doing it anyway. Yes. Now. <laughs> yes. I think, but I think like there's so much about uh, the world that wants us to be afraid, right? Like mm. there's, you know, like there's all those like Dateline episodes and true crime podcasts. This is kind of like a true crime podcast, except we <laughs> get away with it in the end. Um, but, you know, that's like really statistically designed to make us feel afraid. And I think a lot about like how those narratives conspire. And statistically, we're going to be fine. I mean, statistically, we're, we're not really going to be murdered. In fact, statistically, the people who are going to murder us might actually be the ones living inside our homes. The call is coming from inside the house. And that's that's the one. Yeah. That's, that's the scary one. Um, but, you know, we focus so much on these external fears that it makes us you know, so terrified of doing the brave things, of doing the bold things, of doing the scary things, of doing the non-heteronormative things, of, you know, 
breaking this life down and making it what we want, chainsawing it down and turning it into something else. And um, yeah, I I get the fear. I, I, I feel that all the time, constantly. Yeah. And yet it's like, okay, I think it's, you know, yesterday was fine. Last week was fine. So probably based, if we're trusting the pattern, that's what my therapist always says, trust the pattern. If we're trusting the pattern, I'm going to continue to be nervous and it will continue to work out okay. And so I just have to be able to live with those two things simultaneously. And and like, maybe that's the happily ever after. It's just learning you can do it yourself and, and not needing to be rescued. Mm. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot, you know, would my parents probably rather me be remarried? I'm sure. Like, you, you know, to have someone, quote, take care of me, to not be figuring out financially how to do, how to raise two kids, to not have, you know, this ancient house crumbling around me, like the money pit. I mean, yes, of course. Um, and yet, like, what's the compromise there? Like, what is the the trade-off. And I don't think that we should be trading our sort of like sense of wholeness and happiness and self for some, frankly, like not real sense of security, because I had a sense of security for many years and life was completely upended anyway. So you know, I'm not to be hyper independent as a form of self-protection. I don't want to go that route either and just say, I'm an island and I'll never trust again. And that way no one can hurt me. I don't, I don't believe in that either, but I don't want to be sort of reaching out for others to fix my life. I want to take ownership of it myself. Yeah. That's so powerful. I think to realize that like, you can just be happy that you do not have to wait to be happy, that you can just, you know, build the life you want now and not wait for that other thing, that other person to come along. I have a lot of um, younger female friends who are like, should I buy, you know, we live, well, you live in Ohio, you kind of get it. Like I live in a smaller town where real estate's affordable. And so they're like, oh, should I buy this house? And I'm like, but you know, what if I meet someone? I'm like, buy the house, take the trip. Yes. Do the thing. Yes. It's, do it now. Do not wait. Do not put anything on hold. Do not, you know, live in fear. Just go. Yeah. Just do it. And things will click into place. I mean, I think yeah. so many of the decisions I made in my 20s were also really based on what everyone else was doing. Mm. Like, well, all my friends are moving in with their boyfriends. I guess that's what you do. Well, like all my friends are getting engaged. Well, I know I want to get married and have kids someday. So I guess that's what you do. Well, now we're married. So like, I'm not getting any younger. We should have kids. And I think one of the most sort of freeing parts of being divorced in my forties is that I've already done all of the things that the culture wants me to do. Right. So I don't actually have, there's no there's no timeline that I need to live on now. I don't have to be like watching my other 40-something divorced friends and thinking like, well, you know, we, we could just live our lives because we've already, we've already, I already drank the Kool-Aid. I already did all the things. And some of them worked out beautifully and others didn't. 
And now I can just kind of make it up as I go without a blueprint that, that someone's handed me. I was married for almost 22 years. And in that time, what I learned about my spouse was that he did not like to agree. Let's paint the door red or let's install a garden on this side of the house or whatever. Like he couldn't bring himself to agree that maybe my idea was also what he was thinking to begin with. Um, there was a lot of anger. I learned how to not provoke those outbursts. I learned how to be quiet, both literally and, and figuratively. I learned how to whisk my kids away for a few hours if I felt like that needed to happen. It wasn't physically abusive, but it was very oppressive. When you live like that, you learn how to quiet yourself. You learn how to stop wanting things. Um, and what I felt like was that I had put myself into a tiny box and hidden it away in the attic somewhere. So when I finally decided after almost 22 years to leave that environment, I thankfully remembered to bring the box with me. It took me a little while to realize that like, I didn't have to be quiet anymore. I didn't have to censor myself. Um, I didn't have to worry about those outbursts. And I opened the box and I was delighted to find out that I'm the same person um, that I was when I was 25. I might be a little slower but I still love the things I love. And now I don't have to run anybody, run any of my ideas by anybody. If I want to paint my bathroom murder red, I'm going to do it. And it's been the very best thing that I've done for myself in my adult life. Even before I, I read your book, I had a friend texting me uh, pictures of passages. Um, and, um, and I think you know what passage I'm going to read you. Um, and this is the one that I keep seeing shared everywhere. You wrote, the best things to happen to me individually were the worst things to happen to my marriage. And then this, but the best things remain. Um, Tell me, why do you think this phrase is such a personal gut punch to so many women? Uh, I mean, for, for me personally, I think, I think we grow as individuals at the same time that we're trying to grow in couples and in families. And sometimes the things that happen to us personally upset the balance in the whole, right? So as an individual, my writing career, um, sort of gaining traction was a really beautiful thing that I feel like I worked many, many years to, to sort of stumble and, and sort of luck into in lots of ways. And then also having kids was something I always wanted to do. Um, and they are like the loves of my life, hands down, period. Not sure they'd say the same about me. I'm cool with that. I'm their mom. It's fine. Um, it can go one way. It does not need to be a two-way street. That's fine. But I think when I look back at the, the real pressure points in my marriage, and, and maybe I'm not alone in this because if people are sharing this, I'm not alone in this, but the things that brought me the most personal fulfillment were also the things that caused the most tension in my family and in my marriage, um, in part because they took my attention 
and my time, and they were places that I invested heavily. And um, there are still places that I invest heavily. It's just that now I can invest heavily without guilt. Yeah, I think, you know, I think for so many of the people who I've had conversations with about that line, you know, either married or not married, um, they all say that, you know, like that having like these passions and these ambitions become limiting for relationships is there's no space for their their dreams in these relationships, even in some of the best relationships. And, you know, that is played out statistically. Um, you know, women who are breadwinners are there's one study from Australia that's like women who are breadwinners are like 30% more likely to be victims of domestic violence. You know, women who out earn their husbands are more, and this is heterosexual partners, you know, are, are more likely to get divorced and that there is just this real inability for women to say like, yes, I want this relationship and I want to like, and it's important to me, but also you know, but also right. I have dreams. And also, I mean, that's, that's one of the first things that I noticed when my, in my marriage where it was wrong was when I signed my first book contract and I was so excited. I was like, now I get to travel all over the Midwest and go to churches and talk about <laughs> politics. And I was like, so excited. And everybody's like, that's my nightmare. And, uh, I was like, so excited. And, and, and then it was, it, you know, it was like, oh, well, you're going to be gone a lot. Yeah. Well, who's going to watch the kids? I'm like, God, if only they had another two parent. parents. If only yeah, if they only, had two parents. Sure. If only this was a two parent household, then we'd have a great solution to that. It is. And I and one of the things I find frustrating about it is I think that a lot of what what men say they want when they're dating is ultimately not what they want when they're married and raising kids. So all of these like successful, ambitious, maybe out, you know, in the public eye, women then sort of quote unquote settle down. And there seems to be some expectation that that will not continue when you kind of knew what you were getting into all along. I find that really problematic. Mm. <laughs> Um, it's very I don't, concerning. Isn't it concerning? Because I don't think that 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 does not that's not a two way street. I don't think that many women date up like a professional man who maybe travels for work. And then as soon as they get married, expect him to quit his job or stop doing what he's doing. I think there is an expectation that whatever the professional life was before will continue and likely ramp up as the person grows and is promoted. And these are the expectations that we have. And because of, well, this country, <laughs> that's not the expectation for women. It's it's sort of like, so now you're gonna like what, work part-time or scale back because you're gonna be raising kids? Yes, and Eve Rodsky had this really good uh, fair play. Everybody should read it. It's a wonderful book. And um, I think 
a little alarming. <laughs> um, but, you know, she had this thing where um, in, in an article she wrote that um, I quote in my book where she's saying that, like, even if women are like doctors, they still think their job is more flexible. If they're lawyers, they say, oh, my job's more flexible. It literally like women are always defining their jobs as more flexible for their family no matter what they do. So it's not like, so there's this idea, oh, well, women maybe like take more flexible jobs because that's what they want. It's like, no, it's this mentality, actually. Like you could have the most demanding, you know, heart surgeon career ever and that you, that you're still just like, oh, well, I guess I'm on call, you know, so I guess I better, you know, do, do this. And, um, you know, I, I met you right as your career was just like shooting, the sh beautiful shooting star and and was and am still so excited for you. But it's always like shocking to me that somebody would not be excited about that, you know, that you could love somebody and see them achieving all their dreams and be like, OK, a little less. <laughs> and I think this happens with friendships, too. Like if your best friend does what you do for a living and then one of you gets the book deal and the other one doesn't, or one of you gets the tenure track job and the other one doesn't. I mean, we see this, I think, play out in other relationships other than marriages too. And I, I would like to believe that I'm the kind of person who could be wholly happy and excited for my people when good things happen, even if it inconveniences me personally. You know, even if it means like, okay, now we've got to put our heads together because I'm not going to be, you're not going to be around. So I'm going to have to like pick up the slack. I would hope that if the roles were reversed, I would have been really excited and all in. And yet I have no idea because it didn't happen that way. And so I, I want to believe that I would be, I would have handled it differently. But who knows? You know, and I was in a situation where we weren't even in competing careers. Right. You know, so I, I think it's I think sometimes that's an easy fallback, but I think it's there regardless. Um, although I did date a writer one time who and while I was working on a piece and I was telling him like, oh, what I was getting per word. And he was like, oh, do you really think you're worth that? <laughs> you... Have got to be kidding me. No, literally it was just like, you think you're worth that? I was like, yeah, I'm worth more. I'm actually worth more. I'm yeah. being underpaid. Yeah, it was like a dollar fifty a word. I was like, no, I deserve actually two or three dollars. <laughs> uh, why? Why, Liz? Why? 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 <laughs> no, but I just want to, I want to stew in this outrage for a moment. No. Okay. Fine. More questions. Fine. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, let's just a, a moment of silence, get the room tone and the room tone is just rage. It's just hot. Like, wow, it's, it's really hot. It's just like, wow. He can like, he, our producer can hear a crackling <laughs> static yeah. and it's just middle-aged lady rage, yeah, like the, crackling through our homes. <laughs> the vibe is bad. The vibe the is vibe, bad. Vibes are bad. Shut it down. Stop recording. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I think, and so, okay. One of the things I love about your book, um, there are times when you say, I will not be talking about these things, but you acknowledge that they're there, but then just place them on a page. How, what was that process like? And how did you negotiate the taboos and the truth? And why did you want to do it? 
Yeah, I mean, I sort of had to write this book so that I could write other books. I mean, I really, if you had asked me 10 years ago, are you ever going to write a memoir? I would have told you no. And probably five years ago, I also would have told you no. And likely three years ago, I would have told you no. And then I got to a point where I was living this experience, just absolutely steeped in it every day from the minute I woke up at 3.30 a.m. because I'm an insomniac until the minute I went to bed. And I thought, how do I write other things when this is the material that life is handing me right now? Like, I just don't know how to set all of this aside and write something else. My brain didn't want to do that. And so it kind of felt like this giant armoire, like blocking a doorway. (laughs) And in order to move the thing out of the way, I had to write the book. And yes, I was scared to do it. I was scared. um, I was scared of getting in trouble. I was scared of being judged. I was scared of being called a blabbermouth. I was scared of being called a bad mom. Um, I was scared of writing in a genre that is not my home genre and sort of making it up as a poet and doing it in a sort of idiosyncratic way that maybe people wouldn't attach to formally (laughs) and structurally. And yet I still felt like I had to do it. And so I, I just sort of found my way Little by little, writing these vignettes, because I'm a poet, it made sense for me to write small. And that also gave me courage, because instead of tackling it as some giant, you know, 300-page project, I was like, oh, I'll tell this story. I'll share this image. I'll think about it in this way. I'll talk directly to the reader to create the sense of intimacy. Because if I'm going to be this vulnerable in the stories that I'm telling... I want the telling itself to be intimate, you know, like I want to be able to think of the reader as a human being and not as some like faceless crowd that I'm handing all of my life to because I'm not sure I could have done it that way. And so the, the way that I wrote the book sort of enabled me to write and publish the book. It gave me the courage to do it. And I knew, I knew because really I've had to do so much boundary work over the past few years, just in life, forget on the page, just in life, um, that I wanted to enact that in this book and not be coy about it, but, but acknowledge to the reader because I respect the reader's intelligence. Like, look, you came to this book probably expecting X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to give you X and like half of Y. And that's it. And it's not because I'm trying to be difficult. It's because this is not a novel. It's my life. And I, I need to, I need you as a human being to understand that I'm only able to offer you what I'm comfortable with and what I think you need to know. And then there's going to be some things that I reserve for myself or that I allow my kids to reserve for themselves because it's not my story to tell. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, as, as female writers who write about ourselves and our lives, um, even if, well, I mean, you're a poet. So a lot of, I think a lot of people's interpretations of poetry is like, this is everything when it could be like a persona, you know, and, but 
there, but it doesn't matter. Even if we were like writing sci-fi novels, people would still be like, oh, is that you? Is that, you know, is that alien? That's, <laughs> is that giant Martian cicada you? And you're like, yeah, how do you it's know? It's me. Um, it's me. Um, there's a lot of like, and, and there, it goes two ways because I appreciate an audience that cares and I appreciate it when people care and I appreciate that people feel invested in me and in my work. But there are some times when I am like, oh, that is, we have crossed a line and I can't give all of myself on the page, right? Because I have to keep some for myself. And, um, and I think there is that, um, there's that expectation again of women that we just like cut our veins open and bleed for everybody in our relationships and our, you know, our romantic relationships with our children. And that even as writers, we can't escape that, you know, expectation that people will just like take everything from us unless we stop unless we say hey no like I need to retain some of my own blood to keep my own heart beating yeah I actually I don't want to have to transfuse myself for this thank you yeah and honestly there's not really a way to win because if you if you give everything because that's what you think people want you will be criticized for telling too much Oh, yes. And if you hold things back, you will be criticized for not giving enough of the story. Um, If you're angry, you will be criticized for being angry. If you are not angry enough, this has happened to me, you will be criticized for not being angry enough. Um, So I just, I kind of feel if you're sad, you're pitiful. If you're not sad, you're cold. There, there's not really an acceptable way to feel off or on the page and to sort of present a self, I think. And, and part of what I wanted to do in this book was sort of open up a conversation with the reader and not, not to shame the reader, like, why do you want to know this much about my life? But to sort of self-interrogate and invite the reader to self-interrogate a little bit too. Like, why would you want... To know this about my life, you don't know me. Like, why this expectation of sort of asymmetrical giving, which frankly is a problem for women anyway? And I think one thing about divorce was learning how, for me, how to shut off that spigot. You know, um, it it was as my marriage was crumbling when I shut down my mom blog because I was like, I can't be honest you know, and, and I didn't, at that time, I didn't want to be, you know, we were in marriage therapy and there was a lot that was going on that was frankly nobody else's business. And, um, and, but I was like, I cannot be an honest writer and write about my life and without talking about these things. So I'm just turning it off. I'm turning this big off. And, um, and, and I think a lot of, and, and, and I've learned too, like, how to walk out of rooms I don't want to be in. Like, it's not just about writing and building boundaries. It's like being a person and building boundaries. Be like, I actually don't want to be here. I ha- Maybe I have said yes to writing this article, but now that we're in it, I feel very uncomfortable with the edits. And so I would like to say respectfully, let's just walk away. You know, um, so many, the power of refusal is truly a gift. Yeah, that's that boundary setting piece. I mean, I I found and I'll be curious to see sort of like how how this has gone for you and how it will continue to go for you. But I found the beginning of book tour for the memoir to be absolutely excruciating 
Um, I think the first 48 hours were some of the hardest hours like that I had <laughs> in years, frankly. And not until I learned to go into a bookstore, a venue and say, I'm going to be setting boundaries. So during Q&A, you're not going to ask me if my ex-husband has read this book and what he thinks, you're not going to ask me if I asked his permission to write it. You're not going to ask me how my kids are doing or how they feel about it. You're not going to ask me these questions because I'm not going to answer them. And being able to sort of like, you know, and like with good humor, I mean, I wasn't rude about it, but being able to like in the beginning during those conversations kind of set boundaries with the audience and just say, I'm here, like, ask me craft questions, ask me questions about like working up the courage to do the thing or, or what this feels like for me, but I want to keep the answers grounded in my own experience. And I will not be speaking on behalf of others at all or divulging anything else about my family. And once I found out that I can just do that, like I'm allowed to do that yeah. It got so much better and easier and lighter and more relaxed because I felt like I was no longer at the mercy of others. I felt like I was in control of the situation. I mean, how often have women, not just female writers, but been in situations where people are asking just the most insanely personal questions of us and and we feel compelled to answer because we don't want to be rude. Rude, and yet, yeah. What they're asking is for us to like flay ourselves, you know, on this altar of conversation, and 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 we can say no, like we do not have to offer ourselves up, you know, over and over and over again for this ritual bloodletting, and men do not have the same experience, you know? No, people are not asking. I mean, I, I think men get a, many more craft and sort of mm. like professional development questions than, than women do. And, and, and I think there's, there is also like questions that women are asked, the questions that women writers are asked that are really judgments in the form of questions <laughs> who's watching your who's children who's got the kids um where are the kids how much consideration did you give them before writing about x oh, y or z yeah did you think about the children i'm like what oh oh i have kids no, no. i didn't think about who? them at all i don't who who are they now do you have photos because i don't remember who they are just it's so what condescending kids? Um, and really the, the subtext of all of those questions is, I think you should have done this differently. I think you should have handled this differently, but I'm not, I'm not going to offer that as, I'm not going to offer it as judgment because I don't have the bravery to do that. So I'm going to couch it as a question to ask you to justify your decision-making around this. We're going to have another moment of silence for some rage. <laughs> crackle, <laughs> crackle, crackle. <laughs> Another little rage silence just so I can pull myself together. I um, One of my favorite responses when, you know, I'm out reporting or something and people are like, where are your children? You know, and I'm like, oh, I, I locked them in They're the They're in basement. the trunk. <laughs> yeah, I locked them in the trunk. <laughs> Maggie, you're writing this as you're negotiating your new sense of self. So what did that look like on the page and in your thought processes? I mean, I, I think that's, Part of the form of the book 
reflects the fact that I'm writing it from the the sort of mess in the middle and not from a place of, you know, the book I think would sound, feel, and look remarkably different if written in 10 or 15 or 20 years from a place of looking back on this time in my life and having a different kind of bird's eye view on, on the sort of bigger picture. And maybe there's value to that. Like maybe I'll write a different book in 20 years looking back on this time in my life and that will be a different experience. But for me, I, you know, they say write the book that you need. I wasn't seeing books about this kind of experience written from inside the experience. I wasn't seeing books written about this experience that didn't end with a remarriage or or just with a lot of like sadness, frankly, at the end, like feeling unresolved. And so I I I wanted to kind of lean into it and write it from the middle because I think there's value in capturing this kind of experience. Now, could I have written this book from the middle and not published it just to have it for myself? I suppose I could have, but when I finished it, I thought, actually, no, this is a book that I would have liked to read if it had been written by someone else. I think it would have helped me feel less alone in my own experience. Yes, I hear from so many women who want to talk about their lives and want to share and, and want to hear other stories. But again, it's it's so fraught to say these things, especially with the other narratives still walking around, you know, um, out there able to contradict you on Facebook and then cause a mess, you know, it's yeah. really, it's really difficult. And I, I resonate so much with that when I was going through my divorce. I mean, there's a lot of like, divorce memoirs, right? And there are also a lot of like how-to books, like how to get your life back, you know, how to find a man again, how not to be the sad divorce. Yes. I interviewed a woman who runs like a, you know, like a wealthy, you know, wealth for uh, single women kind of a thing. And I'm not going to name it. Uh, but she was like, nobody likes a sad sack. So like, don't like reveling your misery. But I was like, all my conversations with my friends are us ha- talking about these realities, right? Are us like, are us uh, you kicking over the log of the heterosexual relationship and saying, this is the truth of my life. And I just wish more people would be like that. But, you know, like you said, when a woman does, it's like you're being negative. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I and it what makes it worth it for me is getting emails and, you know, cards and letters sent care of my local bookstore um, and, and DMs where someone will say this was the most accurate depiction of what this experience felt like. Like, even if the details of my life were different, but this accurately reflected what it felt like, that kind of, um, you know, treading over the same territory and kind of um, all of that, the sort of like waves of grief that you feel and the, the sort of like the chewing the cud of your experience and not being able to to let things go, that I think... I don't think I could have written that experience so faithfully in 20 years because I wouldn't, it wouldn't be fresh enough psychologically in my mind. 
for me to be able to access that. And I, I needed to do it in yeah. a moment. Um, and I'm so glad you did. All right. You also write, when you lose someone you love, you start to look for new ways to understand the world. Maggie, tell us what new ways are you seeing and understanding the world now? Well, you know, the thing is, I get to sort of see through my own eyes now without having to see through um, anyone else's in a way, right? So like having a kind of singular vision for your life. Now, of course, the kids are not in the trunk of the car. Um, or locked in the basement. So I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, really also seeing through their eyes and processing alongside them and, and raising them up. So it's not quite a, a singular vision. It's a singular vision with children, but it's, it's that being able to make decisions for myself without permission or apology. That's the new way of being in the world is it always comfortable? No. Is it sometimes terrifying? Yes. Do I have any idea what my life will look like in four years? I don't actually. But what I realize is I didn't, I didn't 10 years ago either. I mean, I didn't see any of the things coming that happened. And so that kind of illusion of, of security and safety that my marriage gave me that kind of veil being lifted, I think allows me to see things a little bit more, more clearly for myself now. That's the sort of new understanding for me. Yeah, that illusion that marriage is somehow stability or is is so, or, or, or you're less lonely or all those things. It's just, that's the thing that I think of all the time when I'm in, you know, in a moment where I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm like, I was never more lonely than I was in a marriage, my marriage, you know, because there's nothing more lonely than sitting next to the person who's supposed to love you most in the world and having them not have a single thing to say yeah. to you. And that's um, a deep loneliness. I, it's a, it's a heart yep. loneliness that it, you can't, and you can't even talk about. It's so hard to talk about when you're there Um and and then to come out of that and to say, yeah, loneliness is maybe just a part of the human existence and and whatever, you know, whatever stability we have can just be gone in a minute. Listen, if we learned one thing from 2020, uh, we should all learn that we're all going to die immediately. <laughs> so just be happy now and read Maggie Smith's book immediately. Don't, Don't wait. wait. You could die tomorrow. So buy it now. <laughs> This American Ex-Wife is a podcast created by me, Liz Lenz, and Zachary Oren-Smith, the male mustache of power who must always keep an eye on us unruly women. If you liked what you heard, you can buy my book, This American Ex-Wife, which will be published on February 20th, 2024. Pre-orders really help determine the success of a book. And you can pre-order the book through your local bookstore, bookshop.org, or wherever books are sold. Listen, if you don't want a copy, I'm sure you know a woman who needs to dump him and you can just buy her a copy casually, casually. Thank you so much. And may I leave you with an old Irish proverb. May the dresses we burn light the way. Cinched it. Damn, I'm so good. God, fuck.
Yeah, I see. You didn't even know. You're I didn't dealing know. with this. I was caught you're dealing with a speech and debate captain. Oh, I can tell. The, it's the it's the like when it's you the, hit a consonant. I can I can see the jolt of a consonant. Like <clears throat> point of order. 